Hi, everyone. Here is my disclaimer. Any views that you hear discussed in this interview may not represent those of the station or the host. Hi, everyone. This is Betsy Wurzel, your host of Chatting with Betsy on Passionate World Talk Radio, where our mantra is to educate, enlighten, and entertain. Folks, I have a phenomenal guest. I'm so excited. I do. I get excited about every guest. And every guest teaches me something. Reading their books teach me something. Today, folks, I have Dr. Jay Baruch with me. He is a New York Times bestseller. His book is called Tornado of Life. And you know how I'm into book covers, so I like the tornado picture. A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Dr. Jay Baruch is also a professor of emergency medicine at Brown University, Alpert Medical School, and is also a practicing emergency room physician. And I want to welcome Dr. Jay Baruch to Chatting with Betsy. Thank you for spending the time. You're a busy guy. Uh, thank you so much, Betsy, for, uh, for both having me. And, uh, and a couple of things, you'll please just call me Jay. And also, I don't, I don't know if the book is a New York Times bestseller, as you said, but it's, a, it's something that if it was, um, we wouldn't, uh, my, my publisher and my editor and I would not be disappointed. We'd be enthralled, but, but uh, just to set the record straight, uh, aspiring oh, New York I, Times bestseller. <laughs> oh, I thought I saw on LinkedIn it was on New York Times bestseller list. Oh no! I was I I don't know. I maybe this news, but I, I don't I you know I don't want to oversell the book. I, but I I do think it's um I do think it's worth reading. And I and and if your readers want to push me to that status, I'd be I wouldn't be adverse to that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I I think it should be. Okay, that's my opinion. Uh, <laughs> this book, um, I have to tell you. Dr. J, I have to call you Dr. J. Um, you can do that. Your book is so heart-touching. Um, it's so phenomenal that I can actually see it becoming really an international bestseller, but I, I'm kind of biased towards doctors. Uh, I have to ask you, but I ask, well, I ask everyone, is what motivated you to write your your book? You've had... Um, what, 30 years experience as an ER doctor. You have a lot of stories. Um, so you could, we'll start with that. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I've, I've always, I've always been writing. Um, you know, I am, a, I went to, you know, college years and years ago uh, to be, you know, to be a writer and to um, try to be an English professor. I was an English major in college. And, um, and so I've always sort of gravitated towards narratives and writing, and, and I've always written as a way to sort of process challenging and difficult situations. I can, I can always think better through writing. And I have a couple of um, fiction books um, that were fiction short stories that I wrote before this one. And this particular book sort of emerged out of, um, I think every book speaks to you and says what is what what it needs to be and what you what feels necessary and um and i think um the experience of practicing in emergency medicine and being in emergency medicine plus let's also talk about my experiences as a patient um on the other side of the um on the other side 
of the gown. Um, it just felt so important. And, and there were stories that were not being really written about and they were not really being portrayed in the media. They were sort of quieter stories, so to speak, that were also just rich with drama and complexity. And I think got at the at some of the 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 deep issues that that many of us, both as um, as healthcare practitioners and as as patients and family members, are experiencing. Uh, yes, and I want to thank you. I thanked you before the interview. I want to thank you publicly for being an emergency room physician. I know it's not an easy job, and especially during the COVID uh, pandemic, it was highly, highly, um, even more stressful. And I know that working in the ER, because I worked as a nurse and I worked in the ER a few times, it is stressful. It's high adrenaline. I think you have to be a special type of person to deal with working in the emergency room. You're seeing people when they're not at their best. You have to deliver sometimes tragic news. And what I really loved about your book, Dr. J, is the the stories really are so heart-touching. And I know the title of the book comes from one of your stories. Uh, could you talk about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, the The title of the book, Tornado of Life, uh, emerged from a, an expression a patient has she, a response a patient had given me years and years ago, and she was someone who is, you know, I hate to say it, but is is typical of so many of the patients that we take care of in the emergency department that we don't necessarily hear about. And she's someone who was, you know, was dealing with, you know, uh, some experiencing homelessness and had some substance use issues and mental health issues, and she was uh, sort of brought to the ER sort of against her will from the shelter because she was sort of acting out. And, and then when she came to the ER, she was not very forthcoming in, in, um, in the reason why she was there and she was, whether it was due to lack of trust or um, just a confluence of factors of what she was going through. But when she finally spoke, um, she said, you know, I'm stuck, in the, I'm stuck in a tornado of life. And it just so resonated with me. Uh, Betsy, uh, but so many different levels. One, it's just, it's extraordinary how people sometimes experiencing great suffering can speak such poetry. Um, but also you realize that, you know, so, so many of us, so many people in our communities have their, are experiencing their own, you know, tornadoes of life, so to speak. Time, life can, is not always fair. Um, and that, you know, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm one of the fortunate ones in, in that, you know, um, there's a safety net below me. At least, you know, we didn't, you know, there's lots of many of us, like we can't drop that much. We'll drop, but we have people to help us out when we hit a tough time. But for, for so many people we care for in the emergency department, they don't have that. You know, they're constantly playing catch up there and life is not treating them well. And the system is not uh, acknowledging and, and treating them well either. And, um, and it just, felt so like such a powerful um, story to tell and, and also you know as I write about in that particular story you know the how it deserves a particular type of response from me um, and that if I don't respond to this type of experience in their proper way I can actually make matters worse 
I think you touched on a, a lot of important uh, points, Dr. J. You're seeing, I'm sure you're seeing more people coming into the emergency room with mental health issues, the uninsured. Uh, they yep. Sometimes people use the emergency room as a doctor's visit because they can't go to a doctor. They go to the emergency room as their health care. Um, I've talked on the show many times that the uh, medical health care system is uh, broken. I don't have the answers on how that's fixed, but I have seen it. I've talked to several doctors, and I'm sure like when it says constraints, um, as part of that constraint, your hands are tied. You know, do you over-test so you don't get sued? Do you, um, you know, what kind of constraints are you facing now as an emergency room doctor? Well, you know, the, the, the constraints, they seem, they seem, they seem endless. Um, you know, the constraints that we're seeing at the moment are the, you know, the aftershocks of COVID, you know, which is um, um, people coming to the emergency departments with um, problems um, that were either ignored or were inadequately addressed during the two years of the, then when the pandemic was sort of flashing its teeth um, at us and um, as well as the challenges of, of so many healthcare providers, especially nurses leaving medicine, um, so with less staff. And, um, and then you had increased numbers of patients who had social, you know, uh, mental health issues and substance issues has, has, uh, has gone up um, significantly during the pandemic. So we have a lot of people with more healthcare needs, more complex healthcare needs, coming to emergency departments and there's just not enough beds to see them because so many of these beds are taken by admitted patients who can't go upstairs because those beds are taken. And oftentimes those beds are taken because there's a lack of staff and because they can't get these patients out because sometimes they have to go to nursing homes or other facilities or places that, you know, to be cared for and they don't have beds and they don't have staff. So we're seeing so many downstream issues that are accumulating, um, and which is why I think for, for me at least right now, it's, it's actually worse for us now than it was during the pandemic. Yes, I, I can see that. I remember, and I'm going back uh, 38 years ago, uh, when I worked in a hospital, and there was, it was always a short staff. I mean, they would have the holding room, and that's where I would work sometimes of the overflow of patients, and they were waiting for beds. I've seen patients waiting in the hallway um, of emergency rooms, uh, waiting to get a bed up in the uh, hospital part. Um, the short staff is definitely uh, a major problem. You're having doctors retiring, nurses retiring, and um, who's going to replace them? I have to say as a um, past caregiver, your book, so many stories touch up on caregiving. And I, I do like about your title, subtitle, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, because you have to be creative 
as a caregiver, as a doctor, as a nurse, you're a, a detective. You have to find out what they're not telling you. What's underneath that surface? Why are they in pain? Uh, why are they behaving um, how they're behaving? Uh, do you find that you also have to be a detective? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, yeah, you definitely have to be creative. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I feel that, you know, and I feel like so many of us, just as human beings, we are creative. You know, we're not necessarily talking about sort of creativity, but as far as artistic creativity. Um, but I think so many of us just naturally as human beings, we're, we're curious, right? You know, if we sat down with a friend at a restaurant, they're going through a tough time, we would, you know, we would be curious. We would ask questions. We would, we would poke and we would prod. We would wheedle. We would step, you know, you know, think about what is not being said and what is, and what perhaps way people, people are talking around the topic. These are just things that humans do, and they seem basic part of human interaction. But somehow, somehow, it, it, we because medicine is sort of branded as a science, um, we just forget sometimes, or we don't put enough attention to the fact that um, it's really uh, a communication and interaction between between two human beings. <laughs> And those same those same things that sort of make us understandable to one another still apply in a doctor patient relationship as they would apply in the friend friend spouse you know caregiver partner relationship or whatever um, and uh, and yet for some reason because it's evidence based because it's so science oriented um, we sometimes forget that and why that's so critical is because patients come in. And they, they, they don't give me information. They tell me stories. Um, and, and we still have to bring those tools to the conversation to try to figure out, you know, what is the heart of what they're really trying to tell us. Yes, yes. And sometimes you really have to do a lot of um, deep uh, digging, especially if a person isn't verbal. Um, yeah, and you know, yeah, and, and, I, and I feel like sometimes, Betsy, that we're so, as physicians, you know, we, and it, I think it comes from a, good, from a good place most of the time. I think we'd like to find answers that people come to us and we feel like the expectation is we need to find the answer. And, and sure enough, like there are situations where we better find the answer. If you come in with symptoms of a heart attack, we better diagnose a heart attack, stroke, we better diagnose that. There are certain situations that demand that level of, timely precision but there are so many other situations where um where people just want to people are trying to understand an experience and the model of just trying to reach for an answer and only listening for an answer listening for that information that could potentially give a concrete answer is not what the patient wants i mean they want to be understood they want to know that what you're telling us me is what i'm hearing uh, I'm here. I'm picking up on that. Um, and if and if what you're telling me is is full of anxiety or frustration or fear, um, and you want me to probe and ask questions, I do that too. Um, and so I think sometimes the, what we need to do as providers is we have to sometimes learn how to ask better questions of our patients before we necessarily start thinking about like what is our response going to be. That's a, a good point. I love the story where you have a patient 
and she asked you for a hug. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I just love that because in nursing way back in the day, we would call that tender loving care. And we were taught, because I worked as a licensed practical nurse, and I did bedside nursing, and we were taught, you know, tender loving care. It's okay to give a hug. Now, in this day and age of the Me Too movement and, you know, how do you know the boundaries of, is it okay to give a patient a hug? Yeah, and I was in that particular piece uh, that you know what initially motivated me to write write it is just you know there was certain conversations going on about like yeah you, you always give patients a hug or it's always important to hug your patients if they want a hug and and there were certain patients that I was like that it, it was the it was like the pinnacle of my day or in the pinnacle of my night, like getting a hug from a kid or getting a hug from a, you know, from an appreciative patient. But this particular, you know, situation, I, I wasn't certain, you know. And, uh, and of course, it also, is, as readers will discover if they, if, if they have the, the chance to, to read the book, um, is that, <laughs> you know, I thought it was, uh, initially I, 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 I took some pleasure and, some honor in the fact that oh she wanted she felt inclined to hug me, and then you know I sort of later realized that she wanted every, she wanted hugs from everybody, and maybe there was nothing that was maybe there was nothing that was particularly special or empathic or something she read into me that 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 made her that made me stand out as a, as someone who was worthy of of hugging and. Um, and I dissected, I dissected all the different decisions and all the different emotions that could run through the that you know the moment of sort of when a patient asks for a hug, um, because it's such a it's such a, a deeply human um, and powerfully human um, gesture that is so loaded, um, and um, and and it's not like other requests for like treatment in medical care that we can say no 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 that's okay we don't you don't think you need this or that um or i'm not going to do this or that this is something that's that a rejection or saying no feels entirely different at an entirely different level and um and so that was like a really fun piece for me to sort of dissect that out in all its layers yeah, I thought that was a great story because um, we all could use hugs at times. And if you know you're in the emergency room and you're scared, um, you might want a hug, you know, from yeah. from someone. And I could definitely understand that uh, because I was a caregiver. Your one of your stories about caregiver burnout really touched me. I think I cried <laughs> through that. Um, story um, because it touched me deeply because this uh, daughter brought her mom in and she was hoping to have her mom in overnight so she could get a break and caregivers do get burned out and I want to thank you for writing that in your book I think it's a, a great story it's so important for caregivers not to get to that point of burnout. I understand it, but I right. really am glad that you wrote that in there. Actually, I took, um, we took my mother-in-law, she had Alzheimer's. We took her to the emergency room 
so she could get admitted to the hospital and then go from there into a nursing facility. But she had right. such a change of behavior that, um, you know, doctors said, you know, just bring her to the emergency room. And yeah. I, I, that was a very touching story. I know. It's such, and it's, um, you know, and, and I think, and thank, thank you for saying that, by the way. It was really, um, it was important for me to write that piece uh, because I feel like we don't talk about the, that, the many ways that often the situations that bring people to the emergency department are, are multifold, right? And, and even if the patient isn't necessarily experiencing what you, what the providers might think is, let's say, an emergency or someone who's worthy of being, who needs admission, um, many times when you sort of probe deeply, you realize that you are, your, your real patients are actually the caregivers who are um, stressed and burnt out or haven't slept or have or, or juggle, juggling so many different responsibilities and they're like sometimes the, the sickest person in the room is the caregivers and, and, I, and, I, and I, I don't think we pay attention to that as much um, and, we, and we must do that um, in the emergency department or at least be open to being sensitive to that and it's and sometimes even when when caregivers aren't necessarily seeking respite from let's say admitting a admitting their their family member to the hospital for a break um i i often find that just acknowledging what they're going through and and telling them they're doing a great job and we realize how hard it is for them to to do what they're doing is um is something that is so easy to offer up um and i think we pass up on these opportunities to um to really to applaud our true heroes because you know a significant percentage of of our patients of, of people in america are, are caregivers yes yes and i it's starting to change a little bit i think more physicians are asking the caregiver you know how are you doing and yep. you know do you I'm need glad. resources uh which finally um is uh happening and um i don't want the audience to think i'm, I'm morbid but this story touched me uh I forgot the name of the title dr j but you had to unfortunately tell parents that their child died i think um they were in a car accident right and i liked how you you handled it because you said something to the effect you know i don't know how you feel and right i i don't like it when people say oh i know how you feel when they have not experienced that loss and i really liked how you handled that um, because you have to tell people many many times about a loss in their family and I'm sure telling a parent their child has died is probably the worst um, I can't even imagine saying that I remember working it was Christmas Eve actually in the intensive care and a teenager died you know and the parents I mean just devastating how did you cope with that emotionally dr j to be able to deliver that news and still remain 
um, I don't know what the word for it. Like, I know you have to kind of detach yourself in a way, but you don't want to lose your soul, your, your humanity. Um, how do you do that? It's hard. I can it's imagine. You know, I, I, I wish I had a, an easy or at least a, a, a polished answer for that and or at least at least the imp- I can, could give you the impression that I figured it out and I I haven't you know and I um, you know and I ended I ended that piece with um, you know with this <laughs> with this, this acknowledgement that um, uh, that there's no hiding behind the white coat and that, um, and that through the years it hasn't become easier, and I hope it never does. <laughs> yeah, I you can know. understand that. I mean, yes, um, you know, when you're working in a medical profession um, and you see people dying, and during COVID you saw a, a more people dying than, than you normally would have, you know, they say that doctors get and nurses get cold after a while. What people don't understand is not that we get cold, but I think you have to have some kind of a detachment in a way so that you could sleep at night, so that you could live a, a normal life. But what people don't realize, Dr. J, is that I'm sure emergency room physicians, and I know nurses, I know I did this myself, you go home and you think, did I do the right thing? Did I say the right thing? Did I order right. the right test? You know, and you catch yourself. And you could drive yourself crazy, um, second guessing yourself. Right, and in, and in the piece, you know, I write about how, you know, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we all have these nightmare scenarios, you know, as parents, as wherever about, like, God forbid, this ever happened to my child or my loved one, uh, my family member, my friend. And, um, and unfortunately, like when I, you know, when I go to work, you know, those nightmares, you know, are real to for certain people, you know, and so you become you become adjusted to you 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 can't pretend that they that they won't don't happen because they they happen, um, and you do like you do try to like there are there are certain situations where you know it's it is hard it's not just hard to to give this this news which is going to change lives forever right um but the fact that like it's just then you have to go back and just go about your day and you have you know 20 people waiting for you and you're going to have sometimes you have people yelling at you for being taking so long um because you spent you spent 20 minutes with the family and trying to talk to them and answer their questions and um, and that might have been after you spent, you know, a half hour, an hour trying to save their loved one. Um, and then you have the questions about, you know, wow, could I have done something differently that could have changed the outcome? So there are so many variables to this grief, to this. Um, and then for me, it just never hits me the fact that I'm, and I write about this in the in the in that piece that I. You know, we leave the, the family room and and there's all this like life going on and this family is like what does laughter now sound to them when there's laughter in the hallway or the or just the light in the hallway and how does that 
greet their eyes when they emerge from this room. And um, and you know, and I'm going on 30 years of doing this, and and um, and even you know, last week um, I had you know having a, this, such a conversation with a family, and it's it never. It, 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 I, I haven't figured it out, and I hope I, I never do, because I, I do think you every family and every situation is different, and and I don't want to become cold to this part of what we do. Yes, that's I, I can understand, and thank you, Doctor J, for for sharing that, because um, you know I, I want people to to know that doctors and nurses have heart; they are not you know cold robots. They are human. They have feelings, and I want them to the audience uh, to to know that. I'm going to sidetrack here, uh, Doctor J. I would love to see this in the future. Uh, they do have pediatric emergency rooms for yep. uh, kids. You know what I would like to see? I would love to see an emergency room just for people who have some kind of dementia. So they don't have to wait five or six hours in an emergency room. Um, it, it happened. I had to take my husband, who had early onset, to emergency room because they had changed behavior. And they wanted to rule out if Matt had any infection, which, of course, you know, um, can exacerbate yep. the dementia. So he didn't have any infection, but we waited at least three hours before he went back, so Matt was already agitated. And then I wanted to coax him onto the stretcher, and they don't have the time. They just picked him up and practically throw him on there. Of course, that got him agitated. Then he had to be in restraints and uh, medicated. But um, as it turned out, he didn't have an infection. He was just progressing, um, unfortunately. But I just wished that they would have had where he could have went in and been assessed. Um, and I dream for that day. Do you think that would happen? Yes, I do. I, I, <coughs> I, and I, will, I will tell you that, um, you know, I don't want to be over, overly enthusiastic, but I will tell you that um, over the last number of years, there actually are people within emergency medicine who specialize in sort of geriatric emergency medicine or geriatric care doing great research in those areas um, and you know and we have conversations about that um, especially about you know the care of patients with with dementia because not only is it the weight and not only is it the you know <laughs> is it the fact that sometimes caregivers need and the family need with them need need assistance and during the pandemic they weren't even there for that either right it was just it was triply awful um but also the fact that the emergency department is just a suboptimal place as it stands you know with all the it's with the busyness and all the the stimuli going on around um sometimes like the sleep wake cycle is all screwy Sometimes we give medications that might not be optimal for someone who is older and and older and with someone with with uh, cognitive difficulties and dementia. Um, and there are people working on that. You know, I think right now so many emergency departments are are dealing with just crowding issues that uh, to 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 find to 
pick apart and say, listen, now we're going to find space for you know just for this this group of patients is 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 ideal, but it's kind of hard, and we 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 try to do it in in certain ways um, on the fly and try to adapt to particular situations, but to have a particular space um, with that is quiet, that has sticky stuff on the floor so people don't slip, um, that is more receptive to patients who have dementia would be would be wonderful and ideal. And I and I do think it's going to, to happen at, at a certain point in time because there are excellent people who are devoting their, their brilliance and their energies to, to those challenges. Yes, I would love to see that. And I have to ask you this. I forgot the name of the chapter of the, in your book, uh, Dr. J, but it was, um, I think the person had cancer um, and the family wanted everything that could be done. And I think you asked that they had a medical directive. And yeah. I don't think people, you know, understand that. And you as an emergency physician, I tell people, I run a support group, but I tell people a lot on this show, it's so important to have that power of attorney for medical and the medical directive uh, living will. Um, could you please tell the audience how important that is for them to have that? And do the emergency room physicians, staff, do they honor that? Because people think, oh, they don't honor that anyway. So I like to yeah. hear it from oh, you because yeah, you're the do. authority. Oh my God, yeah. Um, so you know, we're like I'm. A, um, I have my my background is is in uh, is in bioethics. I've done a lot of work in bioethics, um, and so you know, for your audience, you know, uh, who don't know or 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 might want to know more, you know, like and and advanced directives or sort of documents um, that basically at the at, at, uh, to to make it simple to understand, like they speak for you when you can no longer speak for yourself. Um, and usually it involves end of you know end of life decisions. Oftentimes it's focused on you know you know procedures or interventions at the end of life. You know whether it involves you know stuff like intubation, having an advanced airway, being attached to a breathing machine, to getting um, c- cardiac compressions. You know that we, or, or getting shocks, which you see on TV, or or getting big IV catheters and special medications to keep you alive. But ultimately, it's really about goals of care and how you would envision the end of your life if you could. Like if you have, were in a particular situation um, and you can wake up for that second and you saw what you, you, what the situation you, you were in, how would you like to spend the last, you know, the last part of your life? You know, what do you value? Who do you want nearby? Do you want to be made more comfortable? Um, versus having people press on your chest if you have, uh, you know, when you have no possibility of recovering. Um, these are all difficult questions, and sometimes what the documents are hard because they can't anticipate all foreseeable opportunities. So you have what Betsy, what you were talking about, which is you'll have, you know, somebody who's a proxy who will speak on your behalf when you're unable to speak for you, and and hopefully, you know, that person is is designated, is it's assigned beforehand. Um, you make that decision, and also you've had the discussion with these people, this person, um, about what you would want. They know you. They know your values. They know what you would like um, at the at the end of life. When you would like to be aggressive, and when that aggressiveness is really just being made aggressively comfortable. 
Um, and they're really, really important, it's, and they're incredibly important conversations to have. Yes, yes, and I say this, I've had done a lot of shows on this, very, um, very proactive in saying to my audience, I've done many shows about it, being proactive, you know, plan your end of life, had that uh, medical directive. I think everyone from the age of 18 should have it. Um, it could always be changed, but you want to be able to tell the emergency room physician you have an 18-year-old or older what they wanted, what they planned on. And um, people might think I'm kind of morbid when I bring that up, but we have to have to have these conversations. And, um, you know, I, folks, there's like certain people you want to clone. I would love to clone Dr. J. I would love to clone <laughs> you, Dr. J., and put you in every emergency room uh, in the world. Um, there's so much uh, that uh, I could talk to you all day. How has being a, a writer, how does that affect um, your uh, medical side? Then, um, like writing, this might sound silly, like writing doctor's notes. Do, do you find that you get more creative or does being a doctor give you the creativity to like write your your book or is it a mixture of both yeah i think it's um you know i don't i don't necessarily you know you know my i don't doctor to write you know i i went to like i was going to be a writer and i found myself going into medicine because of my actually my fascination with stories and um and having the knowledge and the training and the experience that the, to impact stories was, was really one of the primary motives for, for me. Um, and I felt like I can do these things that I didn't feel like I was seeing at the time from physicians because I came from a world of, of writing and a lover of literature and a lover of fiction, which also means that we're, um, we're all sort of quasi experts at complicated characters. If we're lovers of, of great literature, um, and, uh, and then from my writing, you know, I there's the, so many of the of the aspects of medicine, Betsy, that I thought were going to be really terrifying, or I was most scared of when I went into practice. Um, you know, usually life-threatening stuff um, were terrifying, but I was prepared for it. You know, I was trained well. That's why we spend all those years in medical school. That's why we spend all those years in postgraduate education, like learning, like for me, emergency medicine and learning the skills of emergency medicine and, and working with some great faculty who, who taught me. Um, and also, more importantly, being open and learning from my patients and, and their families. Um, but the things that really, that really um, troubled me the most often were those was facing uncertainty. You know, and when the answer wasn't explicit, when patients came in with, I thought was really important stories to tell, and I was at a loss in how to respond. Um, and they were really, and sometimes they got framed as difficult patients, but really what they were were difficult stories. Um, and I and I found myself by necessity leaning on my creative writing skills and thinking more like an artist at the bedside and and thinking like a doctor and and having all the medical knowledge and medical um, the knowledge of the medical literature and the evidence was important 
but um, but none of that was important um, if I didn't first get the story right, if I didn't understand this particular person at this particular time with this particular set of needs. Um, and those types of skills require the types of probing that I that I got in my creative writing. Um, so, like over overall, like oh, I think I know. I must say, I think I know that studying writing and studying literature made me a better doctor. That is so awesome. And I know we didn't get into that. You were a patient, and it's been rumored <laughs> that doctors and nurses make the worst patients. That's been long, um, that's been told like way back when, um, when I was um, working in a hospital. They said, oh, you don't want a doctor as a patient <laughs> or, or another nurse. Uh, how were you as a patient, Dr. J? I was in denial. You know, I mean, I was fine. Like I was, as, a, as an ER doc, you know, you realize that you're, um, like I'm grateful for everyone. You know, I was, you know, I was, the people who made my experiences so, you know, easy, easier or palatable um, and provided solace for me were really like the nurses and the techs and, and all the people who don't get nearly enough credit um, um, in the medical experience who, um, who, who so deserve it. Um, and, of course, I had some good doctors as well. I don't want to, I don't want to leave them out either. Um, also, I found, Betsy, that, you know, as... Like as narratives, like the people had this idea of like the doctor is patient narrative, and that suddenly it was going to be this transcendent moment, and that we were going to learn everything, and we we're going to be like much much better doctors as a result of it. And I just didn't like being put into that narrative um, because there were certain things that yes, I, I did. I feel being on the other side of the of the stretcher and being more horizontal um, made me aware of aspects of of being a patient that. That I re- that were particularly uh, scared of, scaring, scary. That I didn't recognize it at that level. Just as, just something as simple as waiting for results, waiting for test results. Um, but I also there were some things that made me more. You know, I, I became a little bit harder on some patients um, as a result of being being a patient myself and and saying, listen, you know, you you can go back to work with. Or, or you can you should be much nicer and more appreciative of the staff um, and not yell at us. Um, so it's like like most of the pieces in the book, you know, the situations are messy. They're not one thing or the other. They're everything. They're rich. They're rounded moments with rich with complexity. And so um, I found the experience as a as a patient was equally rich as complex and complex. Um, as well, and and yes, in the end, I definitely think it made me um, um, a more um, multifaceted and sensitive physician to the little things that um, that often we don't pay attention to as physicians um, when caring for our patients. Uh, thank you uh, for answering that. I find that sometimes, you know, as doctors, nurses, we might have uh, more compassion after we've experienced being in a hospital and or having a surgery, facing an illness. My son's doctor told me that she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And when my husband came, he would come with us and I took us to the doctor. She had asked me if uh, Matt had Parkinson's because Matt did look like he he did have it, but, but he didn't. And I said, no, he just said early onset. 
And I, you know, told her, you know, stories that she had that diagnosis and I asked her she needed resources. And I, I told her, you know, about resources and I felt really bad for her. Um, I'm glad she told me. I'm glad she felt comfortable to tell me and that mm-hmm. she allowed me to give her resources. So even, you know, doctors are human beings, folks, and doctors need resources too. And doctors may not know about resources. And I just um, I want to thank you, Dr. J. Baruch, for coming on my show and for writing this book. Folks, you need to get this book. <laughs> this book is so heart-touching, so many wonderful stories, so many stories that will make you think and maybe make you think of your own um, experiences. And maybe when the next time you go to the emergency room, you'll be kinder to the staff. They're doing the best they can under the circumstances that they work with. And it's not easy. And I want to thank you, Dr. J, for being an emergency room doctor, for doing all that you did to help people during COVID and all the time and writing your book. Uh, the name of it, folks, is Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Where can they purchase your book, Dr. J? Um, ideally, at local, you know, either at local um, bookstores, um, those buildings that have books, um, or, <laughs> uh, or um, a, a independent bookshops line. Um, and there's also um, it's also available for sale on that um, online behemoth that begins with an A. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, where can people reach out to you? If they would uh, like to connect to you after they read the book. Oh, please, yes. Um, the best way is through my website, uh, com, And, um, and there's a, a form there for them to reach out to me. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. J. Baruch, for coming on. And um, best of luck to you. I hope you become international bestseller. And um, I could see it. I mean, you are, uh, there was a doctor actually who wrote a book and came on my show, but I'm sure, you know, he's on many, was on many, many shows. He became a bestseller. So oh, it, I believe you will be. Um, and just thank you for all that you do to help others. And I really appreciate you spending your time. You're a busy, busy guy. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on my show and, um, I hope to see another book. I, I really hope you oh, do another book you. with more stories. Stories are important. I t- tell people all the time, share your stories. We learn from stories. We learn from each other. Your book is a perfect example of that, of all the stories uh, you learned from your patients. And now we can learn from them and learn from your experience. I think it's a fantastic book. Holidays are coming up, folks. I would get this book. Hey, do you know an emergency room doctor or a nurse or anyone? Be interested? I would get this book is is awesome, totally awesome. And I want to thank everyone for listening. You're welcome. All information will be in the blog that Jeannie White, who's station manager, passionate World Talk Radio, writes. And thank you, Jeannie, for doing that, producing the show. Excuse me. I want to thank Lillian Caldwell, CEO of Passion World Talk Radio. 
who makes this all possible. Thank you, folks, for listening. Please share this podcast. Please um, subscribe. It is for free on Amazon Music, iHeart, Spreaker. You can listen to it on PastoralTalkRadio.com. And uh, thank you for listening and sharing. When you share my show, you are helping others. And that's my mission and vision is to help other people to have a better life, to know about resources. And as I always say at the end of my show, shine your light bright. And in a world where you could be anything, to please be kind. Because if we were all kind and shined our light, it would be a much brighter, happier, peaceful world. And that's what I have to say. Thank you, everyone. This is Betsy Wurzel, your host of Passionate your host. You're a host of Chatting with Betsy on Pastor World Talk Radio. Bye-bye now.